Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. Although, on this occasion, it being the Halloween season, we are a Guy and Smith-flavoured podcast, returning, as we are, to the saga of Professor Cliff Davenport and his campaign to understand and defeat the giant crustacean menace. And, not only are we looking at our third instalment in the Crabs series, but we were extremely lucky to be joined by Guy's daughter Tara to talk about her dad's work, and that conversation will be uploaded separately as part of a quick one-two punch of GNS action. It'll be next up in your Breakfast in the Ruins feed, so don't miss it. But first up, Graham, Phil and I look into the uncozily catastrophic, Britain is fucked madness and escalation of Crabs on the Rampage. Fair warning. This is a Guy and Smith book, so there will be talk of munched entrails and things that may be considered saucy and perhaps indelicate. So, sit back, apply your clamouflage, listen carefully for telltale clickety-click signs, then join us as we get down into the reeds and tangle with Crabs on the Rampage. We are back in Derry and Tom's. Tis the season. It's October. So we've entered into that time of the year where, number one, we're on our countdown to our Halloween episode. But before that, we decided that as we'd done two Cliff Davenport Crabs books previously, it was about time we did the third one. Well, I say the third one, but we'll get into some of the weeds <laughs> around that later on. But I'm delighted to welcome back our resident Guy and Smith expert, Graham. Welcome back, Graham. Well, yeah, thanks Thanks for having me back again. Absolute pleasure. I think it's probably The Dark was the last time we had you on. And the last time you recorded with myself and Phil, that was The Fog, I think. Yes, I think it was The Fog, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. So great to have you back. And of course, returning in quickfire mode is Phil. Welcome back, Phil. Hello again. Since the last time we recorded an episode about the crabs, we went to Barmouth on our jollies. And its uh, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to select your holiday destination based upon a Guy <laughs> and Smith horror novel. Well, because, of course, we did Night of the Crabs and Crabs Moon, where Barmouth, to be fair, takes a little bit of a kick in. But how, how did you respond, Phil, when I said that we should go to Barmouth on our holidays? How did you feel about that? Uh, I'm so laid back. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, that is very true. How do they say it? Do they say Barmouth or Barmouth? I think they say Barmouth, but we're fucking rubbish at this type of thing anyway, because every time <laughs> we're in Scotland, we call Urban Urban, and we can't, we can't stop calling Urban Urban. And if I say urban, Phil says, no, it's urban, because we deliberately must stick to our guns. <laughs> I think we know that technically it's urban, and I think we're the same with Barmouth. I can't bring myself to say Barmouth. I mean, you don't say Portsmouth, do you? But I don't know. It's one of those strange things, I suppose. I mean, at the end of the day, we are from Humberside, as we saw a reference to in this book. <laughs> we'll get to that. So as Humbersiders, yeah, we do struggle with uh, some of our diction and some of our pronunciation. But we quite enjoyed Barmouth, didn't we? Yeah, it was lovely. Mm, we had a lovely place up on the hillside overlooking Cardigan Bay. Absolutely fantastic digs. Really, really nice place. And Barmouth itself, we were there off-season. And a couple of the places we went, they said that during... 
the holiday season, it gets absolutely rammed. But we found a nice little craft, well, I say craft beer cafe. It was actually a brewery, wasn't it, Phil? Didn't the brew their own beer? Yeah. So it was a brew, it was a tap room for a little independent brewery. Uh, that was really lovely. We spent a couple of afternoons in there. There was a nice wine bar, wine, mm-hmm. wine cafe, whatever it was. Um, that was nice. And lots of nice places to, to go and do play the slots and mm-hmm. hop up and down the coast. So we saw Arthog Bridge which, of course, was brought low by the mighty army of the crabs. Um, It was great. The one letdown was there was not a single mention that you could find in Barmouth that it was actually the site of Night of the Crabs and Crabs Moon by Guy and Smith. Yeah. They do not celebrate it or even mention it, which I think is a real shame. No statues? No statues. Closest thing to a statue, there was a, a little restaurant that we went in and they had a fairly sizable brass crab <laughs> on the window ledge, which we sat next to, which was the closest we got. But no, yeah. there was no statue on Barmouth Harbour. And actually, there's very little harbour <laughs> to speak of. Yeah. So when he talks about the Churchill tank on Barmouth <laughs> Harbour, I'm not quite sure where it would have fit because there's not a whole <laughs> lot of harbour to start with. But yeah, very nice place. Yeah. Did you visit Shell Island? We didn't. We drove past it. And in all honesty, I don't think I wanted to go to Shell Island in case we tripped over copulating couples because, you know, Guy certainly gives the impression that that is what Shell Island almost entirely consists of. So, no, we didn't go to Shell Island, although we did drive past it. And there are lots and lots of holiday camps along that coast. So the holiday camp in Crab's Moon seems really, really plausible. Yeah. Didn't see any crevices on the beach, though. So, yeah semi-accurate let's say but yeah nice place and when it comes to the geography of crabs novels well crabs on the rampage what a treat (laughs) what a treat from the very outset crabs on the rampage goes national (laughs) very entertaining so anyway before we get into it what have you been up to graham what's going on with duck pond sailors uh we recently well friday we had a a charity gig for the RNLI in Little Oh, Alton. nice. Yeah. And that was that was really good. Um, and then we've got another charity. Well, say charity. It's a fundraiser for Littlehampton Football Club. Because hmm. they want they want to get a new stand. Um, so we're we're doing a fundraiser to help them raise the cash they need. Uh one of our one of our members in Duck Pond Sailors is a huge gold, as they're called, the Marigolds, uh Littlehampton hmm. uh, FC fan. Um, and that's around about it, really. Been sort of promoting our album that we released in the summer um but that's a, that's about it it's been a, we tried to avoid doing much in the summer because it's the summer holidays so winter's yeah. normally our time we we sort of go to pubs and sing more so hopefully well, more of that we're definitely coming to that stage of the year especially soon when the clocks change yeah. where when it's dark the best thing to do is be out in pubs yeah. by yeah. fires and if you can combine that with duck pond sailing even better exactly exactly yeah. all good so let's have a think about crabs on the rampage then let's uh let's take a look at the end of the day they always say with writers don't they write about what you know and chapter one i think we've got a classic bit of that from guy where he's writing about this guy ike ballinger or ballinger and we've got bitterns we've got pipe smoking (laughs) he's he's a what's the expression he's an eagle-nosed pipe smoker which basically makes him sound like Cliff, a.k.a. <laughs> Guy and Smith, again, himself. But he likes his pipe. But we also find that he's there 
I think for quite nefarious reasons, isn't he? That's he's, right, yeah. He's there to steal some rare bird's eggs for some buyer. But the first three pages is absolutely wonderful stuff, and it reads it almost reads like the start of an Ian Fleming novel because Ian Fleming was into all this stuff as well, wasn't he? Yeah. So I'm just going to read a little bit, and, and I love it. It says there, uh, he lay his binoculars on the short, spiky grass and proceeded to stuff coarse-cut tobacco into an intaglio-grained bent pipe. Tall and raw-boned with thinning grey hair, there was a streak of ruthlessness in his hawk-like features. A bird of prey, always hunting. A loner who seldom ventured close to the towns except when he needed information. Somewhere out there in that forest of reeds, the hen-bitten was sitting on her clutch. Searching would be a waste of time, even had the area been half the size because the moment she became alarmed, she would become motionless, sit with her neck and bill pointing horizontally, and from even as close as a yard away, you'd mistake her for a reed. The male might return during the day. More likely, he would wait until dark, and a precise bearing would have to be taken on the place where he swooped down. So this is a really nice introduction. He's crawling around in the grass, but it doesn't take long for classic Guy N. Smith italics to kick in. <laughs> and we know that we're in Guy's world. So he hears some noises while he's there. And the noises, of course, are in italics. Click, click, clickety-click. Now, of course, for us Guy and Smith readers, we know what that's about. But it turns out Ike Ballinger knows as well because it was all over the news seven years ago. Oh, God, he remembered. Knew what they were. Newspaper headlines some six or seven years ago came back to him. Somewhere on the Cardigan Bay, an army of mutated crabs that had wrecked a seaside resort, defied artillery, and everything the RAF could throw at them. Then again, some years later, breeding on an island off the Great Barrier Reef, destroyed this time, so the papers have said. So that's our first reference to killer crabs. And we I realised as I was reading this that we actually skipped over killer crabs because... For some reason, in my head, Night of the Crabs, Crabs Moon were of a piece, even though they were written about five books apart. But I think we did have a conversation some time ago, Graham, where you pointed out that Cliff was barely in Killer Crabs and only really at the end. So we decided to stick with the hardcore Cliff Davenport content, which is why we went for Crabs on the Rampage. I have to say that as soon as I read click, click, clickety, click, I was very excited. <laughs> and it was on page four. Did it make you feel at home? I did. It was like, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. That's got to be a T-shirt as well, isn't it? Just that. It absolutely be should great. be. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ike Ballinger saw the cause of their concern because all the birds are all concerned. His mouth opening in sheer amazement and disbelief, thinking for one moment that it was some trick of the heat, a distorted mirage, or maybe even mistaken identity. Perhaps some giant seals which inhabited this part of the Welsh coast, or some renegade band of koipu that had survived man's efforts to eliminate the species. You've read some of his naturalist books. What's a koipu? Yeah. Koipu, they're, they're kind of like a, um, what's, a capybara type thing. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Kaipu that survived man's efforts to eliminate the species. But it couldn't be. The massive sandy-coloured shells, waving antennae. You could even see eyes the size of saucers. Oversized crabs as big as cows, filing out of the tide like an armoured battalion. Jesus Christ almighty! Ballinger felt the clammy sweat on his body going cold, trickling down his spine, his pipe falling and thudding into the mud. He adjusted his glasses, took an even closer look. 
there was no mistake. Some 20 or 30 of these outside crabs were shambling along the tide line, something decidedly evil and purposeful about their movements, the clicking of their pincers reaching his ears like distant machine gun fire. Click, click, clickety-click. So our man Ballinger, for so he is named, is baffled by this, but then remembers the news of a few years ago. And then the crabs eat a cow, using advanced tactics. I didn't mind that the... You know, I was like, Ballinger, you're a horrible man. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But then to kill a cow, well, you know, that wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about Ballinger, though, and I've got to give him some credit here, he sees these crabs eat a cow using advanced tactics that makes him think that they're almost military in their precision. This makes him anxious, so he settles down by smoking a pipe <laughs> and ruminating on the day's events. <laughs> And then he comes up with this very dodgily calculated risk assessment that somehow related to the rarity of shark attacks compared to car accidents and decides to go and get those bitter eggs after all. His calculation makes no sense whatsoever, but it works for him. I was going to say, I have to wonder what he's actually smoking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. His first thought is, sod the eggs, I'm going home. Yeah. But money, I think, took over. Not some risk assessment. Money takes over, but then, then he makes this risk assessment, he says there. Yeah. Take killer sharks, for example. In high-risk areas, they cleared the beaches, but just how many attacks were there on record? Compared with road accidents, there weren't any risk at all. Go even further and compare this strange crab population with that of the sharks. Even though Bollinger had only counted some 30 crustaceans, and allowing for, say, another 100 unseen, it still worked out at several thousand sharks to one crab. Agreed, the latter were probably concentrated here, but the wash was a tremendous area, and the chances of them coming ashore again in exactly the same place were exceedingly remote, and Ike Ballinger made up his mind to go for those bittern eggs. I don't know. W what do we think of his risk assessment? I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm not convinced by that at all. Very what a doofus. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But th this chapter is pure gold because you get that wonderful whiplash between this setting up of this scenario with all of Guy's knowledge about birds and nature and the actual methods that people use to interact with nature and then you just get this crazy, crazy whiplash. He reached the jungle of reeds and followed the course which he had already noted, splashing through the shallow water, the stems head height and having to be pulled apart to force a path. God, it was thick in here, and dark too. He flicked the switch on his torch and the beam reflected a wall of greenery, gave him a shut-in feeling so that he shuddered. He couldn't stop thinking about those fucking crabs. Big bastards that pulled you limb from limb and gobbled your guts like they were eating tripe and onions. Jesus wept. He paused, listened, tried to calm himself. They're probably miles from here by now, maybe on the way back to Australia. Just dropped by for a beef snack. Ugh. <laughs> It's absolutely fantastic. He gets, eat, he gets eaten anyway. Of course he does. <laughs> he gets eaten in pretty brutal manner. And then we move on to a beach scene just down the road from Hun Stanton, <laughs> where we stayed last year. This is brilliant. So we had to go to Barmouth, but this book goes to multiple places where we've holidayed <laughs> over the last 10, years, 10 or more years. What the first say about us? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So we get this beach scene just south of Hunstanton and we meet Lorna Watson and her son, Rodney. And this is our first example of 
cruel, <laughs> mean-spirited <laughs> guy in Smith action. Phil, tell us about Lorna Watson and poor Rodney. <laughs> oh, so Lorna, Lorna Watson is a single mother and it ha- carries so much guilt because she is a single mother and all the thoughts in her head are she has a good body, but everyone's looking at her because they know she's not married. Somehow she's miles and miles away from home, but they all know she's not married. And it's obvious her husband isn't from the UK because her son's a bit darker coloured skin. Was it Italian? An Italian boy? I think yeah. Italian, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's just what's going through her head all the time. Yeah. There's this paragraph, and I'm going to have to remember to put a content warning. <laughs> In the introduction to this podcast, it says, She groaned, hated herself for what she'd done to Rodney, a scar that he'd carry for the rest of his life, even in this so-called enlightened age. You're a bastard, Rodney Watson. Who's your father? An Italian waiter who fucked your mother at the hotel where she had a holiday job, and when he found out he'd given her a baby, he took the next flight home and hadn't been heard of since. Your mother was anybody's Rodney. It was on the cards she'd get pregnant one day. You're just the unlucky bastard out of possibly scores who might have spawned in an infos bleep. <laughs> Let's say chuff. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to use the, the four-letter word here because we're going to maintain some standards. But yeah, numfos chuff. Oh, outrageous. But we then get beach carnage, and this is pretty brutal. Now, I'm, I'm remembering there's a scene in Crab's Moon where a poor girl who's been trying to get shagged at a disco, gets done in by King Crab. And that's pretty horrendous. And it's sexualised as well, which is bizarre when you think that this murder is being carried out by a giant crab. And none of the violence in this, I think, is sexualised in the way that the Crab's Moon violence was on that at least that one occasion. But this is the first of many brutal child deaths... (laughs) And poor Rodney gets done in in horrific fashion, along with many, many other beach dwellers. And uh, it's pretty brutal. Well, it starts with the two young lads who put him on a raft and push him out to sea, which is (laughs) kind of cruel. Yeah, and of course, Lorna sees him floating away past this bloke who pays no attention. So she starts to panic that he's floating off to sea. But that's the worst of her problems. She can't swim, can she? She can't swim. So already we have our first damaged sexually... The women in Guy and Smith novels who die in these vignettes are generally either sexually repressed, looking for affairs, or sexually outward, set the opposite of repressed. And they all get brutally punished for their pains by being dismembered and eaten by crabs and their internal organs being eaten like spaghetti. That was a big one in Crab's Moon. Our third scene of Carnage before the main event, Sutton Bridge Ship Massacre. Now, Sutton Bridge, somewhere we cross twice a year when we go to Great Yarmouth. So Sutton Bridge, Phil, is that bridge. When we've been to the Gammon Motel, we turn left at that little mini roundabout and then turn right and cross a narrow old cast iron Victorian bridge. Yeah, I know the one. That's Sutton Bridge. (laughs) Yeah. So this this is our second spot under crab attack that we've actually visited. On I'm now occasion. starting to worry about how you choose our holidays. <laughs> well, to be fair, we've been crossing Sutton Bridge many times before we ever read this, so this is pure coincidence. Okay. But I'm sure there's somewhere in here we haven't been. 
We'll see. So anyway, uh, a ship crashes into the race suspension bridge thanks to crab action, and Q and Murtaris witness the horror of a massacre, and it's pretty entertaining. The Watchers screamed. They'd seen the crabs, knew what was going on down below, some already having heard accounts of the carnage at wells next to the sea on their car radios. The crew which had survived the falling bridge would either be drowned or devoured by the terrible giant crabs. Nothing could save them. Nobody would even try. And the night air was filled with rapid clicking sounds, as though the fallen suspension bridge had been a guillotine, and a hundred filthy old hags knitted furiously beneath and grinned evilly at the severed heads and blood. That's brilliant. What an image. Finally, a brief silence in which stranded motorists huddled together without speaking, because there was nothing to say which they didn't already know. Then the first ambulance arrived and began to weave its way through the stationary traffic, its siren blazing. Now, I've got a detail to pick on there. And I think we did this with the dark and... Oh, was it the fog? I can't remember. And um, and I was completely wrong because you put me straight on it, Graham, because I laughed at the idea of an attended petrol station in the yeah. UK. And you pointed out quite fairly that, that there are some. But Sutton Bridge is really in the middle of fucking nowhere in, in Norfolk. <laughs> How an ambulance got there so quickly, I find very hard to believe. Unless it's just those were the days when the yeah. ambulance men were probably just eating their sandwich... 200 yards down the road in a lay-by because there were plenty of ambulances back in the 1980s. Eh, we don't know. But it's Cliff Davenport time, finally. I say finally. We're only 22 pages in. And yeah. It's time It's time for Cliff. Yeah. Professor Cliff Davenport had aged little over the last few years. Perhaps one or two more flecks of grey in his dark receding hairline. Maybe another crinkle or two in his lean aquiline features. But he was still as sprightly as he'd been in the days of the Battle of Barmouth. He replaced the receiver on his study telephone in his West Hampstead home and sighed deeply. The call had to come sometime. He'd been expecting it daily since his return from Hayman Island three years ago. He had footsteps in the corridor and the door opening, closed his eyes momentarily and saw in his memory a dark-haired, attractive, petite girl, a wistful expression on her face, sipping tomato juice at a table in that clan bear farmhouse. That was where it all begun, a trail of blood and carnage that had brought its own rewards. Asterisk. Sea Knight of the Crabs. That same girl, he repeatedly told her that she had not aged either, was standing right behind him now, waiting for her worst fears to be confirmed. Both of them woke repeatedly from nightmares in which the phone jangled harshly and tried to reassure each other that it hadn't. Once that bad dream had come true and sent Cliff away to the other side of the world to battle with his deadly foe in the exotic setting of the Great Barrier Reef. Sea Killer Crabs. Oh, we haven't read it. Anyway... More settled and married Cliff and Pat don't engage in no sweaty nooky. They get down to business. But before we move on, that's our second reference to Killer Crabs. So, Graham, can you give us a brief recap of the action in Killer Crabs? Yeah, so Killer Crabs was based on an island off the Barrier Reef. I think, I can't remember the name of the island itself. And there's a, a fisherman, he's a bit of a psychopath, there's a load of rich people there. It's like a, a big resort type place. Um, there's some sort of strange goings on around some money that's that this this woman's trying to steal off someone else, and this fisherman hears about it. The crabs go there, they smash up the island, and then I think Cliff comes on towards the end, and they then head off to another little island where there's mangroves, and that's where they find the queen crab. And then they basically torch the whole of the island. And then Cliff 
Kiln or Clin, I think his name was, and some other people, they survive killing the Queen Crab, come back. Clin managed to get hold of this money, about £40,000, and then he sort of disappears off into the Great Blue Yonder. We do get a reference to Clin. Yeah. Towards the end Quinn of this. Clin and Shannon. Is it Shannon? Yeah. There are references to Paraquat in yeah. this, and the crabs are diseased because they were attacked with Paraquat. Was that in Killer Crabs? The Paraquat was in Night of the Crabs, and they're diseased in this because yeah. of, of nuclear experiments. Right. Yeah, so there's a combo of Paraquat yeah. and nuclear experiments. Yes, of course. I have um, to say before you go on, but yeah. I was really pleased that he married Pat and it wasn't just uh, sex in the sand dunes. Yeah. <laughs> That's not Cliff's way, is it? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> yeah. That said, now they're married, Pat basically has to sit this one out. Apart from apart from one bit where he's at home and she brings him a cup of coffee, and another bit at the end where she passes comment on the state of him after his after an encounter, which we'll get to, which also made me laugh. So yeah, Pat didn't really get any action in this of any variety. Uh, she's just there. She's just his wife, and she's now air indoors. Now we have to give a mention to Greasedale. Greasedale is back too, the man from the ministry, and they have a crab specimen that was crushed by the falling bridge at Sutton Bridge. So Cliff is off to check it out. Cliff can't wait to get his mittens on this dead crab specimen. Another note here on Guy's use of italics. It's the most Garth Marenghi thing about all of it, because whenever I read it, I have to heighten in my head. It's I have to read it like Matthew Holness or Garth Marenghi. I just can't help it. I just can't help it. But... Um, there's a passage here, bottom of page... Are you working from the same edition as me? I think so. Yeah. 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 The last paragraph on page 25, where it starts, the professor worked diligently in silence. Oh. I'm going to read that on the following page. Would you read Greasdale's dialogue? Yeah, I'll try. The professor worked diligently in silence, the odd exclamation merely confirming his original findings. Handling chewed chunks of human flesh was far from pleasant. The shell was identical to those of previous crustacean casualties, armour plating that defied most weapons with the exception of nuclear warheads and falling steel bridges. Time passed, 3.45pm. The only sound in the shed was the buzzing of a few blue bottles that found crab meat a delicacy in spite of its tough texture. My God, Cliff peered closely at some offal which he was attempting to separate. What is it? The other moved to his side. Very interesting. Davenport separated some tissue, peeling it away from the flesh with difficulty. These intestines. Now, look closely and tell me what you see. Looks like boils of some kind. Greisdale shuddered his revulsion. Almost, the professor nodded. In fact, it's a cancerous growth, which, judging by the way it's spread right through the internal organs, it's highly malignant. Good God! Greisdale stepped back a pace. A crab is cancer, according to the books. And this bugger's growing them like weeds in May's shower. Jesus, it ought to be dead with that lot inside it, Clifford. A notable crab species with a proportionate amount of cancer growth would be. Davenport laid down his scalpel and reached in his pocket for his pipe. This one is just so bloody big and tough that it's kept going in spite of being riddled with disease. But for how long and why? Interbreeding, the effects of the paracrat we sprayed on its ancestors, and how many of them out in the sea have got it? That's what we need to know. I don't quite follow you, Clifford. Let me explain. Davenport paused to get his pipe going. Suppose this latest breed are carrying a terminal disease. One danger is that it might spread to other forms of underwater life and destroy everything that lives in the oceans of the world. 
Jesus Christ. The other possibility is that these crabs are doomed, and possibly they know it. This is their last throw, a do-or-die assault on mankind. Phew. Graysdale pursed his lips. This is just, it's just fucking brilliant. You, you, can, you can just imagine Richard Ayoade playing Greasdale. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah, Matthew Elness played Cliff Davenport. We've had this conversation before, but I think Matthew Elness' character, Garth Marenghi, dresses like Sean Hudson, but definitely writes and performs dialogue, certainly, like Guy and Smith. It's wonderful. I can't get enough of it. Now that you two have just performed it, that is just how it sounds. <laughs> It's brilliant. I like the fact that Grisdale always calls him Clifford. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I don't think he's done that in any previous books. It's like he's using his Sunday name or something. They're so well acquainted now, he calls him Clifford. It's fucking great. We follow this up with an interlude with the brutal death of poacher Andy Caxton. And a pattern starts to form here. There's a little bit of extra crabby context here in that the crab is a bit confused and weird before obviously it eats him in traditional bone-crunching, sinew-chewing fashion. And then we go back to Cliff and Greasdale. There, there is a, an asterisk about the origins of the crabs. Ah, yes. So that's our third reference. He does like to refer us to his other books. And I do have Origin of the Crabs and Killer Crabs, so I think once we've got our work set out for us in the next couple of weeks, we've got to read Lair and Domain and watch Rat's Night of Terror. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, I think between now and Christmas, I've got to try and read Killer Crabs and Origin of the Crabs, simply because once this is done, the book he wrote after this was Crabs Moon, which we've done, and then after that was Crabs the Human Sacrifice, which is the one with a crab on the cover holding a sacrificial knife in its claw. It's a great book, that one. I've got to read that. <laughs> Cliff has reached some conclusions now. The crabs are riddled with cancer. The confused and verging on suicidal at times. And this makes them even more dangerous. And following a call to Greasdale from the MOD, we hear the crabs are back at Barmouth and have attacked Barmouth and Shell Island again. Are they after vengeance? What's going on? Well, let's find out. So in Chapter 3, Greasdale and Cliff observe from a helicopter as a fighter jet shoots up a formation of crabs headed for the River Neen. But they realise the crab army is already dead. They died on the march. And there's some nice reference to 30mm Aiden cannons not being able to do much more than chip the crab shells. So how do they deal with this? Well, they go to the pub and drink some whiskey. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Greasdale's optimistic, though, thinking perhaps this is the end of the crab army. Now, Greasdale may have had a point here, because I'm going to ask a question at the end of this discussion as to how much impact on proceedings any of our protagonists actually have in a meaningful fashion. But Cliff is more circumspect and he has a grim sense that they're just waiting for the next news and it doesn't take long to come. And we'll get the tale of Mark Sand and we'll get another lovely blend of warm, rustic nature detail that rapidly turns to mad, violent crab action and death. Once again, sweet, sweet whiplash. I think you sent me a screen grab of this chapter, Graham. I did, yeah. It's, um, it's just classic Guy and Smith. It's fantastic. I do like his vignettes, though. I do like the little stories within the book. They're great. They're a little... Once in a while, James Herbert will do a more developed one, like the guy and his wife with the pigeons okay. in, in the fog. But most of the time, the James Herbert ones are like a page and a half. Um, someone's camping, he's probing their moist triangle, 
and something terrible happens. Whereas you get a little bit more of a sense of who these people are. And once again, it's Guy writing what he knows, isn't it? He's, he's writing about nature, the countryside, the people, the methods. And th- there is, we'll, we'll get to that shortly, but there is a, he's like swapping and changing between vignettes about male characters and vignettes about female characters. And for currently we've got a pattern as well where we get death vignette, cliff action. Death yet, cliff action. But each time there's a new one of these new rapid fire vignettes in James Herbert books, there are so many of them. Sometimes I think they actually hold up the progress of the plot a bit. Yeah. But in this case, each one is adding a piece to the jigsaw. Each one's layering on an additional factor about how the crabs are behaving and how they're deteriorating. And in different parts of Britain as well. Yeah. The news after this reaches Greasedale and Cliff that the Seven Valley is a new attack site now, and it's all getting massive in scale because, of course, Mark Sand was... A, was he... He wanted a poacher. What was Mark uh, Sand? I've forgotten. He worked for the Wildfowl, uh, the Wildfowl Trust. That's right. Bird shelters. He loved birds. Yeah. yeah. I think he didn't mind being killed in the end because he saw all those lovely birds slaughtered. He wanted to go and protect them, didn't he? He, was, he just cared about the ones that couldn't fly away. Mm. Yeah. You wanted oh, to Mark. help them. But the news of this has reached Greasedale and Cliff. My God! Greasedale's voice shook as he thumbed another drawing pin into the large wall map in his temporary HQ at Sutton Bridge. Slimbridge wrecked, and some crabs have been sighted in the River Seven. What the hell's going on? A pattern is forming, Cliff Davenport replied. Our theory is becoming a reality. The crabs are infiltrating Britain by its tidal rivers. No longer is the safety in land. Of course, as we know, they're doomed, and before long they'll all be dead but they're big and tough enough and they can survive one hell of a lot longer than an ordinary crab out of salt water. The Wash and the River Neen, Barmouth, Shell Island, the Bristol Channel. Where next? Where next? The question that every one of the special fighting force in that room was asking themselves. I don't see much point in my remaining here, Davenport went on. It looks like a headquarters centrally situated in the southern half of the country might be more beneficial. Like London? Greasdale suggested. Yes, like London, Davenport agreed and reminded himself of his promise to Pat to be home for the weekend. As you know, my home is virtually a laboratory set up to combat crabs. I'd like to work from there. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, but Pat's pleased about that. It's it's just so brilliant. He's got his crab lab. <laughs> um, it's fucking great. And he won't get pulled off by his wife, so it's a <laughs> double win. There was reference that he did say he'd get back by the weekend, so I think he's he managed to wrangle that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he I, think, did. I think he actually said it at least twice. <laughs> he did, yeah. Yeah, back when they were studying the uh, the body, it was like, well, it's Wednesday now, and I told Pat I'd be home by the weekend. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. But of course, pattern continues. Cliff and Greasedale, death vignette. Cliff and Greasedale, death vignette. And now we get the story of Elaine and Rex. <laughs> Phil, Phil, I'm going to come back to you again about the poor female characters in these books. I don't know if we've commented on this in our previous crab studies. Right. But there's another pattern here that men come a cropper, the usually rural types. Again, guy writing about what he knows. So we've got the bird egg stealing guy, we've got the poacher, we've got the guy who loves birds at a bird sanctuary, and we've got the women. Do all female characters in these books basically boil it down to sexually frustrated single mothers stroke singletons and or sex pots that then get horribly killed and eaten for their sins? We do get one example that doesn't fit that mould a little bit yes. further on. And okay. I actually I actually wrote this question before I'd read that bit, so I did it to answer my own question. But we've got to say, Elaine 
chose poorly. But Rex has his full title, yeah. Rex Ashley Mickleton. Yeah. She's just Elaine. She yeah. doesn't even get a surname. And, my God, what an absolute prick this guy is. And there's, uh, I, I laughed out loud when I read this entry earlier on. And so they're in the river and they're getting jiggy with each other. And he says, I say, he was chewing her ear again and whispering, you're not a virgin or anything like that, are you? That's up to you to find out. She wasn't giving anything away, not as directly as that. He was going to have to find out for himself. What say we go up onto the bank? He fingered her with a sudden purposefulness, not as warm in the water as one would think. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask me to play Elaine's character. <laughs> oh, brilliant. He fingered her purposefully. <laughs> It's incredible. It's incredible. But another death-tastic episode in the river, mass murder by two raging crabs. But once again, it's super violent. Lots of other people cop it as well. But we get that little bit of context about the behaviour of the crabs not being quite normal for them. And And also, she's the second character who can't swim. So women, they're sexually fucked up and they can never swim. I don't know. But she's quite different to the first character in that she's quite happy to get involved in all these orgies. She just wants him, if it's for one night, two nights, three nights, yeah. her head is just there. She wants him. Yeah, so she's she's the promiscuous guy in Smith, bit part yes. female character who gets brutally killed. Yeah. As, as is Rex, to be oh, fair. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Now, for the first time, crabs actually engage in mortal combat with each other after the finished feasting Sorry, on the bears. Sorry, before you go on, yeah. did you get the bit where he waltz trying to save himself? <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. He punches her out, doesn't he? He punches her to save himself because <laughs> she's dragging for him yeah. to try and save, to save herself, yeah. and he punches so her he to just, get through. He just knocks her out. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible, uh, yeah. So it was a it was a poor choice, Rex. And so and the fact that he says "I say" as well is like some weird Terry Thomas character. <laughs> it's like "I say" as he's fingering her purposefully. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, but these cra- these two crabs that have come inland, that after they finish feasting on river bathers, they're losing it in their diseased rage. They actually attack each other, which is quite unusual we've not seen that before but quick question as guy ramped up the violence quotient in this installment because in terms of brutally violent attacks and people killed to page count i think this is ramping up a little bit compared to the others yeah yeah this one's just as you say it's that that uh cliff and grisdale a bit of violence and then that it's just sort of setting the scene isn't it yeah yeah the crabs are on the rampage yeah, I fucking love it. It's it's it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's brilliant. It's like him and James Herbert are at some kind of war of escalation at this point. So I mean, this is yeah. in, this is written in nineteen eighty one. Yeah, the year after Herbert released The Dark, which, as we discussed when we covered it on this podcast, was like the fog on steroids. A year <laughs> later, Sean Utson enters the fray with slugs. It's, it's there's really some kind of like killer critter, uncozy catastrophe, war of escalation going on with these books at this point. Oh, it's wonderful. I can't get enough of it. Now, 
on into chapter four, poor Elaine just becomes another pin on Cliff's wall map in his crab lab. And he's exasperated as he tries to figure out what's going on. But at least he's got Pat to put the kettle on. So that's quite handy. Ian Greasdale now have more intel on crab incursions up rivers and estuaries to reach as far inland as Leamington Spa. And a big crab force remains off the coast of Cardigan Bay, plotting who knows what. Where will the strike next? Well, the Isle of Dogs, as it happens, in Docklands, in London. So we get the, the ballad of Bob and Molly Stannard. Oh, Bob, a poor security guard on the docks, working nights. Molly, his wife, once again. Actually, I say once again. Molly is a female character who isn't sexually promiscuous or frustrated or any of those other things. She's more like the pigeon wife. No, she's not like the pigeon wife in The Fog. She's quite a... a she's agoraphobic. She's neurotic. And she, she, she's also doomed because the scale is growing again. It says we've got firemen getting killed. We've got the army getting killed. We've got Greenwich Power Station getting pulled down. We've got the Royal Navy College. And poor Molly, our first female character, not to roll around fingering or self-loathing, nevertheless gets brutally eaten. It's terrible. Poor Molly. Of course it came into a house. We need, we need to say what happened to Molly, though. Tell us about Molly. All that was left of her, what, where her head was cut off and it fell in the toilet. <laughs> her head fell, twisted and wedged in the bowl, staring up at the cracked ceiling with an expression of terror that <laughs> not even death could erase. <laughs> oh, poor Molly. I think at this point, in celebration of Molly and to toast her off this mortal coil, I'm just going to uh, I'm going to quickly open a beer. Um, because I finished well, my first I mean, one. before he cut, he cut off her head, it was she shouted, "I want to die! I'm being eaten alive!" <laughs> yeah, I think that's entirely fair. We've not actually um, discussed our libations up up until now. What have you got there, Graham? I've got a uh, a local brewery, Langham's, uh, a hip hop. It's a very nice. One of my favourite beers. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. What are you on, Phil? I'm drinking one of the Naked wine, white wines that you got me. Mm. A Virgil Jolly. Ah, we like the Virgil Jolly, don't we? Very nice. Yeah. Um, I'm drinking one of the last of the beers that I picked up in Barmouth. Uh, it's not a Barmouth beer. It's a Parth Maddock beer, actually. Mm. But I, we, we did buy it at the little beer place in Barmouth. And it's Purple Moose Brewery, Dark Side of the Moose. And I think it's just a classic bitter. Let's have a look. Yes, it's a dark bitter. So I picked up quite a few beers while we're over that side, and the Purple Moose Brewery is very nice. Yeah, most enjoyable. One thing I've got to say for Porth Maddock, best sausage rolls I've ever eaten in my life from a place on the high street in Porth Maddock. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I've gone off on a slight tangent there. So, yeah, poor Molly. <laughs> That's because you were a bit obsessed with them, yeah. sausage rolls. Well, they were fantastic. I think when we came out, you know when you get something like hot pastry and... It turns the paper bag almost mm. transparent because it's so greasy. All like that and warm. It's incredible. I just stood, stood in the car park, shoving it in my gullet, like like I was King Crab, eating <laughs> eating spaghetti intestines. Yeah, bit of Grizzy and uh, and Davenport action. You're right, Clifford. Brysdale had arrived at Cliff Davenport's West Hampstead home shortly after dawn, having flown back from Wales the moment he had received the news of the attack on London's East End. Oh, Jesus, how right you were. Those crabs in Cardigan Bay were a decoy. 
They had half the armed forces ready to repel a major invasion along the Welsh coast, and then the big lot moved in onto the Thames. The power station of Greenwich Reach, in no more than a heap of rubble, as is a Royal Naval College and half the docks, a cost to the taxpayer that will run into billions of pounds. And they're in the Thames. God, they could wreck most of London, and we couldn't use the heavy stuff on them. I've news for you too, Grisdale. Davenport's face was grim, his red-rimmed eyes proof he had not slept much in his last few days. I've been carrying out further tests on the remains of that crab in an attempt to identify the disease. Certainly radioactivity is responsible for the growth. But I found something else out, something much more horrifying. And what's that? The Ministry of Defence man seemed to wince as though anticipating a physical blow. These monsters aren't spawned from the ones we fought and almost destroyed off Hayman Island. They're a new mutation. Somewhere in the depths of the ocean, somebody has carried out nuclear experiment, which has escaped the notice of the rest of the world. Who and when is anybody's guess, but it's had exactly the same effect as the one which brought the original crabs into existence. Christ alive, Greasedale. Any ruthless nation wanting world domination could create armies of these crustaceans and just sit back and bide their time to take over what's left of the coastal nations. And I'm not altogether sure, but I believe this latest foe can even survive in fresh water unless his cancer wipes them out completely. We're going to be in real big trouble. Oh, crikey. Italic-tastic. Things are afoot. Weird new developments. Nuclear experimentation. Crab armies. Cold War weaponry, possibly. Who knows? Who knows? But chapter five. Off to Scotland. And I think there are references here to Origin of the Crabs, which I also haven't read. But of course, as previously mentioned, now I'll have to. But uh, Graham, any insight on what goes down in Origin of the Crabs? Yeah. So the synopsis of Origins of the Crab is based around Loch, Loch Merce. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what you say, Loch Merce. Yeah. Um, the crabs appear there. There's a, there's a laird who's horrible. The crabs basically just kill a load of people. Um, and then they disappear. Mm. And and they people just say there's monsters in the in the lock, but the uh, actual actual witnesses of it they all get killed. Right. So no one knows that the crabs exist. Uh, but that's the origins of the crab. Yeah. So there are references in this chapter to the rumours yeah. of strange things going on, and this old laird of Cranlarick Estate who got eaten by the crabs of Loch Merse. Well, a new laird of Cranlarick Estate turns up who's bought the place. He also gets eaten by crabs from Loch Mars in short order. Not before, for one reason or another, he figures that the massive crab that sends its offspring to eat him is the queen of all the crabs, and this is her spawning ground. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, he pretty quickly comes to that conclusion, which is quite impressive, but I'm guessing he comes to that conclusion because he's aware of all these rumours and he's seen the news on the telly and he knows what's going on. Whilst we're talking about the new lad, John, yeah. I mean, his first thought was, I need to get away so I can tell everybody mm. rather than thinking about himself. Mm. He seemed like a kind of decent guy. Yeah, he yeah. does seem like he wants to raise the alarm. He actually says that, doesn't he? Yeah. Unlucky, John. On to chapter six. Oh. And possibly my favourite character in this entire book, Noel Forrest, Honourable Member of Parliament, for which constituency <laughs> we don't know, but... At first, I was like, I love Noel Forrest. Noel Forrest for PM. And then I kept on reading. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a look at this. <laughs> the Right Honourable Noel Forrest would undoubtedly be late for question time in the House this afternoon. He accepted that fact long before he reached Westminster Bridge and was forced to bring his Ford Escort to yet another halt. 
Queues of traffic jammed Victoria Embankment and Bridge Street. Horns blurred. It seemed that everybody was in a hurry to go somewhere. Anywhere, so long as it was well away from the Thames. Simply because somewhere in those muddy depths, giant crabs lurked and might attack without warning at any second. Whatever else might be said about Noel Forrest, none could claim that he lacked courage. Certainly not the courage of his own convictions, however ridiculous they might seem to his fellow MPs and the electorate. At 50, he still had ambitions of parliamentary glory, a sweeping victory in a forthcoming manifesto. His remorseless campaign to bring about unilateral nuclear disarmament would one day become reality, as would the nationalisation of the banks, insurance companies, land, and a crippling wealth tax would shift the wealth from the rich to the poor. A total reversion of present-day circumstances. Which was one reason why Noel Forrest insisted on living in a very ordinary, semi-detached Clapham house and driving himself around in a P-registered escort. It was all part of a subversive plan. <laughs> Which even he didn't fully understand, although the media had only yesterday accused him of running with the hare and hunting with the hounds. In short, to win the support, confidence and votes of the everyday man, you had to walk alongside him drive an escort in the adjoining traffic lane, not try and put yourself above him with a Rolls or a Daimler. Then he would help you to get what you wanted off the capitalists, a bloodless revolution, and only when that was achieved could you indulge in a few of those luxuries which you had secretly coveted, but openly spurned throughout the long campaign. The Russians had needed a bloody revolution to fulfil their ambitions, but Noel Forrest was much more cunning than that. Without nuclear deterrence, the Soviets might even come and do the job for him, in which case they would undoubtedly install him at the head of the puppet government which they would set up. Disarm the people in readiness, a tightening up of firearms and shotgun legislation, promoted under the guise of reducing armed robbery, which it wouldn't be as everybody knew, because it was the unregistered, not the registered arms, which found the way into the hands of criminals. Bit of guy politicisation yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Helped by inciting the masses against blood spots so that the need for guns in civilian hands was reduced. It was all a very exciting thought, particularly to the right honourable Noel Forrest. <laughs> I think I think maybe we know where Guy sat yeah, re regarding so. socialism. <laughs> but the funniest thing about this is this is like the dirt sheet on Corbyn. <laughs> this is like the right-wing attack dirt sheet on Jeremy Corbyn. He's a Russian agent. Ugh, he'll bring the Kremlin in via the back door. But in this case, the establishment don't need to take him down by underhanded means because he get eaten by crabs. <laughs> in pretty short crabs. order. <laughs> oh, Central London is an orgy of crab violence and Westminster is right at the heart of it. It is... But Wonderful. But he's another one who couldn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> Guy's got a real problem with people who can't swim. He just never took the opportunity when he could have, i.e. at school. Yeah. He goes the way of everybody else so far in this book by getting eaten by giant crabs. Central London is this orgy of violence. It's all wonderful. Yeah. Extensive descriptions of monster critters destroying civilization, especially in England or Britain is entirely my jam. I love it. Especially with Noel Forrest, there's an italic bit where it says, damn you, I'm Noel Forrest MP. You can't do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, I am dead, I tell you. I lied the first time, the second time, it was true. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we do get a lot of like people's internal monologues as they're getting dismembered <laughs> and, their, and their reactions to it. It's fantastic. We also find that there's an Inspector Wicklow who's Greasedale's eye on the, eyes on the ground. But we only get really one more reference to him in the rest of the book. 
So I won't really go into any detail about Inspector Wickler. didn't really have any impact on things. doesn't get eaten or anything, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> now, all of this is entirely my jam. Not so much my jam is the passage about, in inverted commas, slit-eyed Limehouse triads. <laughs> oh, guy. Hashtag of its time. If its time was its time minus 40 years. It's uh, it's all a little bit Sax Roma at this point with these uh, this triad war going on, which which seems really random and out of nowhere. And it happens as a vignette. There are some Chinese people and villains described in pretty derogatory, racially characterised ways. But, you know, at the end of the day, they get eaten by crabs. So I suppose we can move on from that. But just reading that little bit made me shudder a little bit at the idea of reading Bamboo Gorillas. Mm. I probably would give that a miss. Yeah. Well, it's easy to give a miss because it costs about 100 quid a pop, doesn't it? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, dear, oh dear. So Bamboo Gorillas, Phil, is Guy N. Smith's, is it World War Two Prisoner of War? Or yeah, is it so. Burma? Something like that. It's, it's yeah. a war novel, maybe about Burma or something. So there'll be lots of characterizations of Japanese soldiers. And apparently it has a reputation that even by the standards of those exploitative novels, it's pretty rough. Yeah. Right. We can move on from the triads anyway. They do get another mention further on. But chapter seven is an interesting one because it's mostly the self-contained story of Sid and Diane Warriner, their son Kit, and their horrific death in the Blackwall Tunnel. And it's grim, of course. Kit is the second young child to meet a terrifying, lonely death at the claws of crabs, the poor lad. And I've got to say, though, lots of this book would be absolutely awesome in a well-funded film. But this would be a sta- this could be a standalone 90-minute film, this. It's only about five or six pages. But imagine the Sylvester Stallone film Daylight, but in London, with an Austin Allegro... The last scene is the child getting horrifically killed by giant crabs while everything around him burns. No happy ending. <laughs> Nobody escapes. Not even the child. Ben Wheatley, make this film. Make this film. But it is interesting where he's actually, you know, Guy Smith's actually decided to do a whole chapter for this little family, isn't it? Yeah. It's basically a short story. Yeah. This chapter, isn't it? It's a self contained short story that's got everything. It's a disaster story. It's a disaster movie set piece. People are just killed by the crabs. Somebody sets a fire. They wonder whether the fire was set to contain the crabs. There's an excellent observation in a further chapter as to who might be spreading those rumours. But it's, she's it, a very she's a very unhappy wife. She's unhappy with him. Yeah. And I <laughs> Na- think, naturally. <laughs> and I'm gonna have to say it before we move on. But he decides to go, he makes a go, even though she doesn't want to go, and then he tells her to pack. And then make some sandwiches for the journey. So, what are you doing, Sid? Yeah, he did try to go to the phone box, didn't he? That he was did. His, the biggest effort he, he he did. Walked to the phone box, and then came back. That's I fair remember effort. the days when there was just phone boxes. Oh, <laughs> happy happy day, happy days. Queuing outside a phone box, waiting for some student to come out of it, and then getting in and realizing it stinks of piss, and it eats your ten p, and you're failing your mission. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, although I do I do remember doing reverse charges phone calls to my parents to seek help. <laughs> then my mum turning up next day bringing me a box with some you remember soup with a stag on the tin. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, happy days. Happy days being skint and having to use a 10p <laughs> in a piss smelling phone box with smashed windows on spring banking all. Oh, those were the days. Yeah. 
you don't remember all those bits. You only remember the good bits. You know, I only remember the family-sized Donna meat and chips, pink cake from Skelton's. That's mainly my memories of those days. Uh, yeah. Suddenly when these conversations pop up, I start to remember the shit bits. Mm. So that was a great chapter. You say it's a great... It's it, it very bleak. Does, oh, that, yeah, I love it. Mean? Yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. When it, Kit woke up and didn't, they hadn't even told him they were leaving him. No. They put him there asleep. So is, is, he, is he six or something? Yeah, he's young. Yeah, yeah he's I can't young. remember whether he's six or it's the one on the, the even worse one on the fishing boat near Filey, which is which is actually even worse. Oh, he's 12. Is he 12? Right, yeah. So there's yeah. a six-year-old kid who gets laughed in the back of the Austin Allegro while his mum and dad go and try and sort things yeah. out. And they both die horrifically. The tunnel's on fire. He's pinned in there and he gets brutally eaten by crabs. It's ass. <laughs> it's absolutely ass. I love it. Uh, you know, in a horrible way, naturally. And chapter eight, similar kind of deal, but we're back on Shell Island. So, of course, because we're on Shell Island, it's all about affairs and shagging, and it don't go well and they get eaten. So we could probably and just sand dunes. Yeah, and sand, ju- sand, dunes. sand dunes, shagging, affairs, don't go well, they get eaten, we could move on. No. Whoa, whoa, oh, no, no, why, why, go, go. He helps her to get lifted up by the helicopter. She lives. Oh. So he gets killed and she gets rescued. Yeah, because people pull him down, Larry. But was it Jill? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jill. Yeah, Jill gets lifted to safety. Oh, good old Larry. Yeah, so her little boy will still have a mother. Oh, good old Larry. Even though she was shagging. Good old Larry. So he he didn't punch her out in order to escape? No, he helped her. Yeah. Fabulous. What a guy. So he's basically our number one hero in the book. He's actually our only hero in the book so far. And we're a hundred pages in. What was Larry? Was he like a was it some sort of like forester or something? Oh, I'm trying to yeah. remember. He's forestry joking. forestry work. Honest manly work. <laughs> yeah. Not like Rex. Not like double barreled Rex. Oh. So yep, yeah, sorry, I I did uh, Larry a dirty there, didn't I? Anyway. Jill gets away with it. Although he did take her away knowing she was a married woman to sleep with her. But, in sand uh, Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I suppose you've got, you got to set the rough with a smooth, haven't you? But he saved her, yeah. 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 So back to Cliff and Greasdale in Chapter 9. They're at a crisis meeting in London, and the situation in London is critical, what with the falls of various parts of the city and bloody left-wingers accusing the government of deliberately firing the Blackwall Tunnel and there's open triad warfare on the streets. And then we never hear anything about the triads again. It all seems very, very sort of odd and random, that. But what's more, more crab sightings are coming in in other inland areas. But Cliff, being Cliff and having strong opinions, has come to a position on what to do. There's only one explanation Cliff Davenport licked his lips, knew how Darwin must have felt the first time he put forward his theory on evolution. We know that the crabs are dying, leaving dead ones in their wake. We also accept that they're determined to wreak their vengeance on man in the time that is left to them. The most mysterious factor of all, though, is their determination to trek inland. As I have already stated, they have somehow overcome their physical need for salt water and are able to survive in inland rivers and waterways for considerable periods of time. But why go inland when they have thousands of square miles of ocean to live in? There can only be one explanation, gentlemen. Doubtless you have all heard of the mythical Elephant's Burial Ground in Africa, a place which explorers and white hunters once searched for in vain. 
I believe that this is what's happened to the giant crabs. They are heading for a last resting place as far from the sea as possible. Gasps of incredulity greeted Davenport's words. Wicklow could not disguise his expression of disbelief. Heads were shaken, lips pursed, but none voiced their inner thoughts. The professor had earned their respect over the years. If he had suddenly gone off at a tangent, then it was only to be expected. They were all under terrible pressure. What are your plans, Clifford? <laughs> Greasedale turned to the man at his side. I'm going back to the Welsh coast. Cliff had a determined glint in his eyes, his lips a firm line. I think that's where I'll be needed most. And anyway, I've a score to settle with these devils. We defeated them there before and I'd like to be in at the kill again. Wicklow can go clean up his east end. There's enough soldiers in RAF to keep tabs on those going up the Thames and the Seven. But there's going to be one hell of a battle when the crabs come ashore at Barmouth. So poor Wicklow's just left to sort out the east end. Yeah. Yeah. Unlucky Wicklow. You've got to sort out the east end and the triads. And I think there's a reference that they haven't got enough um, police or soldiers to actually combat the crabs. All they can do is crowd control or something. It's, yeah, some bizarre reference. It's all where's extent. Clifford got his view that they're all coming on land to die? Where, where's, where's he come up with that? You know what? It's just instinctively perceptive, I um. guess, is, uh, is the explanation. He's got some kind of tie with these crabs and he knows what they're thinking. Yeah. Some observation. There's, there's been no king crab, has there, in this? No king crab, no. No king crab at all. Just references to queen crab. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Next part, our third horrific child death, possibly the worst and most graphic, certainly from his dad's perspective. So six-year-old Sam is fishing with mum and dad, Reg and Hilda, it's, and it goes... Absolutely terribly. I'm sure he's 12. Yeah, he's it's 12. 12. Sorry, 12 year old Sam. And we get a nice explanation of why Hilda even goes fishing because Reg basically wore her down over years and convinced her that she should go fishing. Yeah, but she wasn't on the fatal boat. She wasn't on the fatal boat. No, that was just uh, Reg and Sam. Poor Sam. And of course, the people who crewed the boat. And uh, yeah, the, the, the death of Sam is, is pretty horrific. <laughs> It's awful. We'll have to have a look, I think. One moment Sam was there, the next he wasn't. Reg Clifford came out of a wave and began to panic. If the boy had gone under, then surely he'd come right back up because the belt wouldn't stay down. He looked round. It was difficult to see anything in this mountainous, watery landscape. Once he thought he glimpsed an upstretched arm, but he could have been mistaken. Going anywhere, going nowhere. Swallowing water, trying to see out of salt-smarting eyes. Jumbled awful thoughts. Hilda would never speak to him again. He had to find Sam. Another wave caught him, twisted him round so that it was facing the other way, whichever way that was, and in that instance, he saw Sam. The boy was spinning around, coming towards him. Stupid idiot. Somehow he'd got the life belt from beneath his arms and had it round his neck like an outsized collar. The same stupid, half-soaked expression on his face. What time's tea tonight, Dad? I hope Mum ain't got wet in the rain. Angrily, Reg Clifford reached out, just managed to get his fingers in the belt, it came towards him too easily. Too easily. You bloody fool, do you ever do anything properly? Lift your bleeding arms up and let's get this belt under them before you drown. Sam stared vacantly as Reg jerked the belt up out of the water. A rush of water, the boy's head going back, bobbing up and down, upturning in the heavy swell. Just ahead, no arms, no body, trailing sinews like crimson seaweed, going under, coming up again, a message in the staring dead eyes. Dad, they got me, just left me head. Babbling insanely, Reg Clifford clutched at the remains of his decapitated son, cradling the head to him. 
kissing the unresponding lips, tasting the salty blood. Then the crabs got him from below, voraciously eating their way up his body, tearing his limbs away, feasting as they travelled below the waves. A dozen of them, no more, just a scouting party ahead of the main army, which bided their time in the North Sea, off the Humber estuary. Before long, they would move in on yet another vulnerable waterway. Oh no, not the Humber. Woohoo! Oh, looks like Grimsby's in trouble, Phil. Uh, boo! <laughs> uh, ch- ch- sadly, I, w- I was really hoping we would get a scene with the Dock Tower at Grimsby or something like that, or a scene in Hull, but we don't. We just get Cliff being aware of the trouble brewing over in Humberside. Uh, Humberside. Yeah, there was a skirmish off Grimsby. Yeah. That's my only mention. <laughs> yeah, get a skirmish off Grimsby. A couple of fishing boats attacked. Oh, <laughs> what a letdown. But, I mean, you know. We grew up in Humberside, in inverted commas, didn't we? Back to East Yorkshire now, as it should be, and North Lincolnshire. Cliff is aware of it, but he's too busy getting excited about helicopters dumping paraquat in the sea off Barmouth and wistfully recalling meeting Pat Benson thanks to the first crab invasion. Oh, bless. He goes for a walk on (laughs) Shell Island and to his horror and consternation comes across a horrific figure crawling through the grassy dunes, a shellless diseased crab which he first mistakes for some kind of weird Kim Neptune-type apparition that he thinks might be the old beach bum <laughs> who got eaten. Well, I can't remember the beach bum's name off the top of my head. Bartholomew. Yeah. Bartholomew. Bartholomew the beachcomber. A couple of soldiers happen by and shoot it for him, and they have a very brief exchange. The soldier says, This, this crab hasn't got a shell, sir. We were able to finish it off with our rifle. Apparently so. A lot of peculiar things are happening these days that have never happened before, and mankind is responsible for them. Advanced nuclear technology created the crabs, now it's destroying them. How many crabs are out there in the oceans of the world? 500? 5,000? 50,000? They're doomed by the radiation which mutated them, a cancer which eats the flesh and now apparently separates it from the shell, causing untold suffering. Can we really blame them for hating man, corporal? I guess not, sir, but if you're sure you're okay, we'd better be getting back to the seawall. It's dangerous to stop out here. The three of them walk back together, turning only once to stare back at the incoming tide. A soothing sound, so peaceful in its glorious setting. Deceiving. But they knew that somewhere out there, the diseased dying enemy was mustering its waning strength for one last all-out attack. There was no way the crabs were going to stop out there and die ignominiously on the seabed. Oh, the calm before the storm. Shortly afterwards, Cliff gets summoned to the Arthog Bridge by one Colonel Matthews, and the crabs are coming. But interestingly, they witness something quite different. The crab army is disorganised, listless, and relatively easily repelled. But our Cliff, being Cliff, he just can't help going to check on a stranded, defeated crab that he thinks is dead. But of course, he's wrong. Is this the first time... Cliff ever gets up close and personal with a crab and actually gets in harm's way? Uh, no, in the uh, Night of the Crabs, he goes uh, scuba diving, doesn't he? Oh, he does. Yeah, that's right. Well, this doesn't go very well for Cliff anywhere because it wakes up and eats his hand off. There's a lot of hate all the way through the book, isn't there? The, the, the malevolent... Male- male- I can't say that word. Malevolent. malevolent. Yeah, I mean, I think they've always been pretty malevolent. Crabs on the Rampage is an apt title because they're going hell for leather to eat and kill everything, including each other. He described it as an armoured, mud-splattered, invincible mound of hate Mm. that reeked of rotting evil. Yeah. 
you'd, you'd, you'd wear a mask, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't talked about the pus and cancer smells, have we? And... Oh, yeah, there's lots of references to pus and horrific smells of rotting flesh and, and everything else, yeah. It's all it's uh, it's all quite vivid and visceral and descriptive when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, so poor Cliff, he gets his left hand snipped off and both his legs broken and he thinks he's, thinks he's for it. He's face down in the mud and he's waiting for death. And, oh, no, cliffhanger. Cliffhanger, he blacks out. <laughs> yeah, he does. So he blacks out and then we have to wait to find out what happens. We get two whole chapters first of stuff happening. First up, we get Ben Hendricks, a Birmingham bailiff, with, quite frankly, some quite unusual daddy-struck crab issues <laughs> arising from an incident <laughs> in his youth. What happens with that is he, he, has, he has nightmares about when his dad brought a crab home because he'd been crabbing and he got his son to kill it with a hammer and then the oh all... no no he was killing it himself but it wouldn't die it kept running off yeah but his, his dad gives him the hammer to to kill it doesn't he does he not all oh. oh, right either yeah, way he's trying to kill a poor crab with a hammer and he keeps failing it keeps running off but eventually they kill it and they tear it apart and eat it and he has to eat it for dinner and it makes him violently ill yeah in the end his dad pours boiling water on it and That's he can right. hear the pain from the crab yeah, and then he, and then he eats it and pukes. Yeah, and he has a, a terrible nightmare about a, a recurring nightmare about this crab, but larger coming back to kill his dad, and he has come across a diseased and dozy giant crab in a waterway. He's developed this plan to take a, like a, an animal trap and put it's it a in man the water. Trap. A man trap. Yeah. That for some reason they've got in the shed and put in the waterway to trap this crab. And actually, it's completely successful. But we have what I've written in my notes as a, a lol passage. Slowly it cleared, a face materialising out of the murkiness, a leering gargoyle with eyes that glowed red, saw and hated. And in that instant, Ben Hendricks recognised it, his recurring nightmare coming back with a jarring, numbing force. The crab, the one his father had killed in the garage that day, the one that had come back from the dead last night, engorged with human blood and hungry for more, only it had lost its shell. It reared up out of the river, showering puss and mud like a retriever shaking itself, lunged at him with a newly found strength, only to be jerked back by the chain, a hiss of pain and rage, falling back on its jellied haunches, threshing with his eight uninjured legs. Ben Hendrick wiped a hand across his sweating face. This was too good to be true. He'd actually caught one of these oversized fuck pigs. He'd stepped back a pace, checked when he remembered that he couldn't get him anywhere. He brought the gun up, was in the act of cocking the stiff hammers when a sudden thought crossed his mind. He lowered the weapon, laughed softly to himself. He could kill it, okay, no bother, even with this old scattergun. But that would be too good for it. Death a welcome release from the indescribable agonies that were burning up its diseased and injured body. Let it suffer. Fuck the Protection of Animals Act, 1911. <laughs> Guy is exercising some real bugbears. In this novel, isn't he? <laughs> He's really getting some stuff out of his system. It's fabulous. And for once, our hero of the moment, Ben Hendricks, the guy with strange daddy crab issues, is triumphant. He finishes it off with a shotgun. Only to get eaten by crabs. Oh, Ben. You were so close to being the hero of the day. Oh, yeah. dear, dear. Although some of the description I was a bit... Sending stabbing blades of fear into the pit of his 
overweight stomach. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Lots more clickety-click, click, clickety-click as well. And of course, we also get a, a reference to once they've done that, some of their own number are dying as they move and then they're eating their own dead almost to, to clean up after themselves as they go. And then we get a next chapter. We're back at Cranlarick. PC Glendon, three years off retirement, drops by the Royal Stag for a whiskey. He's looking for the unfortunate lad who we know met a sticky end at the hands of the Queen Crab. He doesn't find him, but he does find loads of crabs. But he doesn't get eaten and he gets away. So PC Glendon, three years off retirement, survives. Good old PC Glendon, because they're all dying. And after laying low in the undergrowth for a while, he actually manages to escape. All oh. night. All he night. there all night. All night. And at this point, you realise, right, there's only one chapter left. Nobody in this book has really taken <laughs> any kind of action which has material affected the crab invasion. And we think, right, okay, we've got one chapter left. Cliff is surely almost dead or dying. What's going to happen? Well, Cliff's in hospital. Pat's there. She's miffed that, in her words, the crabs have left her a cripple for a husband. <laughs> yeah, that was harsh. <laughs> And they all go, ah, ha, 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 But uh, after, she, after she says that, it's, 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 Cliff's, it's Cliff's response. It's not that bad, he smiles. Yeah. <laughs> My broken legs will mend, even if it does mean a month or two hobbling around on crutches. Mercifully, it's not my right hand that's gone. I'll soon get used to coping with an artificial one. <laughs> Good oh. old Cliff. Yeah, he's pretty adaptable. Isn't yeah. he? It's, it's it's also it's just so dark place. It's incredible, and we get a couple more accounts of crabs engaging in internecine warfare, effectively ignoring humans until they happen to get in the way. And basically, it's all over for now. For now, at least, we do get a couple of additional accounts these vignettes. But basically, the only way anybody gets hurt is because they just happen to get in the way of these crabs battling each other to the death. Oh, you mean like the water skier, Bill? Yeah, and, you know, the kids are kind of just throwing rocks at them, watching them tear into each other. And, yeah, it all kind of rattles to a halt very, very quickly. But we do get the wonderful, wonderful last bit of it. The end of the book is so dark place, it's unbelievable. Well, I think it's all about wrapped up now. Breesdale relaxed in an armchair in Cliff Davenport's West Hampstead home and looked thoughtfully across at the man who had given his left hand unselfishly in the fight. The only reports now are of dead crabs, everywhere. They've got to dredge them out, the Severn and the Upper Thames. A few without shells, it seems, that this cancer's taken their armour off. It doesn't kill them first. I don't think we've anything more to worry about now, do you, Clifford? In the end, the cancers maddened them so that they fought and destroyed their own species. I was said to Pat the other day, Cliff lowered his voice, glancing towards the door. I'm not a bit happy about it, okay? We've got rid of the crabs, and I think this time we can congratulate ourselves on a pretty good clean-up. But it's these subversive undersea nuclear tests that worry me. That was how the crabs were created. Who's to say that the Russians won't go and mutate another batch? Or some creature far more terrible? The crabs left the oceans for a very good reason, and I'd like to know what it was. Did they realise there was radioactivity in the seas and do their damnedest to get away from it? Or is there something far more insidious lurking out there right now that even they fled from? Good God! Greysdale grimaced. You don't really think so? Speculation on my part. 
Davenport forced a laugh. Until something happens, we'll never know. In all probability, it won't. I know I'll be damn glad to get an artificial hand and these plaster casts off my leg. Then maybe I can start doing something useful again. This time, they both <laughs> laughed, but they had to work at it. Oh, oh it's, like, it's like a warm bath. It's, oh. it's incredible. I love you, Cliff Davenport. It's I love the... But they... But, but they they had to work at it. Yeah, laughing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like you, you can imagine them going ah ha 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 ha, but look but looking shiftily, sad to sad while they're doing it. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it's fucking incredible. But it's over for now. So really, back to that question: Did the heroes have any impact whatsoever on the outcome of this story? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. The crabs got so far, then they just died. Well, they knew that. Most of what they had wouldn't have any impact, yeah. and they knew they were dying, so they were kind of crossing the fingers that not too many people would die, but they did. Yeah, Greasedale was right about about forty pages in when he said, "Well, they're just dying, aren't they? They're just going to die." He was right. He was right. They did. They just died, and they just killed each other. But it doesn't matter because it was all good fun anyway. Racial caricature aside, it was it was all good fun. But wait, there's an epilogue about Clint, this character from Killer Crabs. There's a sort of coda to Killer Crabs. And there are some light spoilers in there for that book. But that's about it. Thoughts on Crabs on the Rampage? Or anything to add on that epilogue? No. I mean, personally, I know they didn't do much to try and fight them, but I did enjoy all the different areas around the country that were brought in Mm. to this. Mm. I did enjoy that. I loved this book. It was so easy to read. It was a blast. And I enjoyed Night of the Crabs. I enjoyed Crabs Moon. I think I might have enjoyed this one more than any of them, just because the scale of it went completely over the top. Just the offhand references to fire engines getting backed up and then the crabs eating all the firemen. You know, no offence to any firemen who might listen to this, but this stuff, it's just, I love it. It's great. And he manages to do it in like 140 pages. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, yeah. I do like the fact that the main characters don't really do anything yeah. apart from talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but when they do talk, oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's just so good. Yeah. Some very good uh, dialogue discussions yeah. there from you two. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still haven't read the Garth Marenghi novel that was released oh, last year. Yeah. And I don't think at any point that Garth Berenghi novel will be any funnier than some of the stuff <laughs> in here between Greasdale and uh, and Cliff Davenport. I think it's absolutely brilliant. There's a few more of these to go. Killer Crabs The Return came out in 2012. That's like rocking horse shit, really hard to find. Yeah, I've not read that. Yeah, I do have The Charnel Caves, which came yeah, out in that. 2019. So I'm going to read Crabs The Human Sacrifice. I'm going to read these other ones that we missed out. I'll read... I'll see if I can ever get hold of Killer Crabs The Return. I don't think we'll cover them on the podcast. No. Probably. I think we've done enough with yeah. Crabs now. And I'm not sure any of them can actually top this. But I need to find out what he could possibly have meant in his final speech about a potentially even greater threat. I need to know what it was or if it even exists. <laughs> I'm trying to... Yeah. Trying to like trying to think of what the, uh, the premises of the, the crab sacrifice is. Yeah, that one's set in East Anglia, I think. Yeah, it? I've read it, and well, I'm, I'm trying to think, is it even more eviler than this? Not really. No. <laughs> it's just yeah. still crabs. 
it would be it would be <laughs> hard to top this. It would be very very hard to top this. Well, that was Crabs on the Rampage. Thank you both for reading it and coming along to share your thoughts with it. And uh, we'll look forward to doing something else. But I think we've done Graham Masterton now. We've done Guy and Smith. I think we need to find another left field kind of wonderful semi-one-shit book, Britain is fucked, catastrophic animals attack, horror novel to pick up somewhere further down the line. But we'll see. That'd be our mission. Let's find that book. We've (laughs) got to find one. We've got to find one. And I'm sure we will. I did really enjoy this, so I hope that somebody else will get pleasure out of my copy. Yes. Well, that will be going to somebody. We'll see who. Yeah. Because uh, and actually, this is quite quite a nice prize for somebody because these books are are going for quite a few bob now. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we'll have to uh, we'll have to do a draw and have see you got the same that. the same copy. Yeah, we've all got yeah. the NEL edition. Yeah. I think that might possibly be the only one out. I don't know. I think from the last time I looked, I think these go for about twenty quid. This and Killer Crabs go for about twenty quid. Night of the Crabs has got gone up in value. Crabs, the NEL edition of Crabs Moon. I couldn't find one for less than 100 quid. And the edition that I've got um, was 25, 30 quid. So, yeah, Guy and Smith is becoming really super collectible, particularly the Crab series. Mm. So what's the one you've not been able to get hold of that you wanted to? Killer Crabs, The Return from 2012. But that was published. Black Hill Books, which I think yeah. was Guy getting his books back into print um, through their own means. Yeah. Uh. And while Channel Caves is still easily available on Amazon for a tenner, Killer Crabs The Return, just can't find it anywhere. Can't find it on eBay. It's not available on Amazon. So it's one of those, if you find it in a bookshop or a second-hand bookshop, prize it, yeah. hold it dear, and enjoy it. Yeah. But we'll be talking to Tara at some point soon, of course, Guy and Smith's daughter, who I had a conversation with about potentially coming on to have a chat about her dad's work and legacy and the work that she's doing to get his work back into print. And the last message we exchanged, she said she'd identified an artist for the covers. Hopefully we'll be getting closer to seeing a lot of his work come back into print. That'd be good. Yeah, because some of them are are commanding quite tasty prices on the second-hand market. Uh, But you've had quite a lot of success just biding your time, haven't you? Yeah, I've, I've, um, it's mainly been buying in bulk, yeah. where people have got selling a large volume of them, and yeah. then I buy them, and then it comes out a, a decent price, really. Mm. Uh, but you have to be quite committed when you're buying sort of like fifteen books in one, yeah. one go. Yeah, uh, I was looking on eBay earlier, and somebody's selling a job lot of about twenty five NEL biker books. Oh right, in various conditions, but there yeah. are, there are. Um, multiples of several so there's like three or four copies right. of, of one book yeah, yeah so i think but some of those go for a few quid i think if you could be asked to just pick up that lot and yeah. then sell them individually you could probably make your money back and, and cover the cost of the ones that you actually wanted to keep yeah I just, i'm just too lazy yeah. i can't be bothered you just be collecting them yeah but yeah I'm, there's there's tons of nail books i want to be picking up on actually mm. there's one in the back of this I was trying to find it. It's just called The Apocalypse by Jeffrey Bonvitz. I've no idea what it is. Sounds mm. interesting. If it, if it carries the NEL label, I'm automatically interested. Yeah. Yeah. Not so long ago, I got The Temptation, and I, I can't remember what put me put it in my mind, but in the early 80s, there was an American miniseries. It was a, th- a three-part limited series with David Soule 
as a as a soldier and Rock Hudson as the president about it's called World War Three. Yeah, and it's about uh, an in an incursion of Russian paratroopers in Antarctic in sorry Alaska heading to take over an oil installation to blackmail the USA into lifting a grain embargo. And it causes an escalation to World War Three. And I remember seeing it on TV in the 80s and, and it having a real impact on me. And I've tried to find a DVD of it and there's a, a Warner Archive DVD of it, which I think I ended up paying for 20 quid for. But yeah. I also got the novelisation, which, which was published by NEL, yeah. and, read, and read the novelisation round about the same time we watched it. We watched it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, Phil? Yes. And it was, it was really enjoyable. It stood up really, really well. For a TV movie, it's the, the actual action in it and and the combat in it is is really well handled. It was very 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 good. But yeah, the NEL novelization was great. It was based on the original script, so it's slightly larger in scale. Yeah, yeah. A little, the action is a little broader. You know, stuff that they couldn't afford to do for a TV movie. Yeah, there's just so much great stuff that NEL published. Yeah, and I really should one day when we actually get a room where we can just shelve it out and and have all of our books in it in one place. I just want to line up all my NEL books so uh, so that yeah the little NEL logo yeah, is yeah. consistent across all of them. Yeah, great logo, isn't it? Yeah, I think I did that when I was a teenager when I had my bookshelf in my bedroom. I had all my NEL books lined up. Yeah, but anyway, off yeah. on a tangent there. But anyway, we'll think of something. We'll think of something. But once again, thanks for dropping by, Darian Tom's to talk about Crabs on the Rampage, the end of the Cliff Davenport trilogy. Even though there might be more, I don't know. Thanks very much. See you again. Cheers. Massive thanks to Graham and Phil for joining me and Derry and Tom to talk crabs once again. And be sure to tune into part two of this guy in Smith Brace for our discussion with his daughter Tara. Graham's albums with the Duck Pond Sailors are available on Bandcamp, and we're going to play this show out with a choice cut from their latest release, Urban Navigators, so stay tuned at the end for the ghost tank of Rackham Clump. And you can find out more about them at duckpondsailors.co.uk. And naturally, thanks as always to our patrons for keeping the show on the road. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix and our chaos engineers, Andrew C. Cluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Bill O'Cat, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Ofa Ziv, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, and Simon Perrins, and thanks to our crafty jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Eliel Westenra, Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, and Toby White. And finally, of course, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Tone Malazzo, Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, Dave Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Marius Latowskis, Miles Riedelbato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never in the slightest bit least, Robert McMillan. Alright, enough yakking. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. 
you can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden. We have our Patreon page too. There are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Rods. Their guns all in the air A sergeant comes calling To take your boys abroad Gather up your children Hold them near town have seen it, a mighty, mighty instrument, a miracle of warfare, now just a children's toy. Downsmen of memory sleep in a distant cemetery, lament the county's children, drowned in fear. Rumbling, its guns all in the air. Oh.